0: Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peak's downloadable messages and podcast. This week, we have a special message from our student ministries pastor, Dave Cox, and it's entitled, The Da Vinci Code, How Do I Respond? Well, good morning. You guys with me today? If you've got your weekend view, go ahead and pull that out. There's an outline in there. You can use that to follow along because we are talking today about The Da Vinci Code. Now, I know the first question a lot of people have is, well, what's the big deal? This thing is just a book. It's just a movie. You ever heard of that? Tom Cruise just came out with MI3. He's setting up his Scientology tents, talking about all that. Why aren't we talking about that today? Because nobody listens to Tom Cruise. (laughs) Um, People listen to Dan Brown. Uh, Now, there's two things that are fascinating about this. This is why it's a big deal. Number one, it's become a cultural phenomenon. It's just bizarre. Do you know that his hardback, uh, the hardcover book, sold 45 million copies? The very first week it came out in paperback, 500,000 copies were sold. Um, opening weekend, 71 million at the box office. It's a blockbuster. It's huge. One out of, um, two people, uh, say that they're going to see it. So 50% of the people are saying, yeah, I'm going to see this movie. So it, there's this really bizarre thing. It's become this cultural phenomenon. And why is that? You know, what's, what's this, what's the reason this thing is catching on so much? Um, a couple thoughts is one is, you know, this thing, it's, it's about scandal. Uh, everybody loves a good rumor, right? It's this whole thing. It's the National Enquirer, the Globe at the, at the newsstand. And this is kind of like a sophisticated National Enquirer story in movie form. And the this short version of this is that the Catholic Church is the villain. They've been suppressing truth for 2,000 years. Boo. Um, and everything that you've been taught about Jesus is wrong. He was married, he's got kids, he wasn't God. Uh, the Bible that you have in your hand is not reliable. Uh, Christianity cannot withstand scrutiny. That's what it's, it's really claiming. And uh, it has the whole storyline of uh, the Holy Grail. Um, now, I know a little bit about this. I've seen Indiana Jones. I saw that one. <laughs> even saw Monty Pythons. So I have a little grasp of this thing. Um, I know that because the Bible doesn't talk about it at all. It really doesn't care. Uh, but the movie cares and acts like this is a big deal. And they, but they say that the Holy Grail is not the cup Jesus used at the Last Supper, but it's actually the descendants um, He and Mary Magdalene that are walking around—that's the Holy Grail. So, anyway, big story, a lot of scandal involved, and it's also anti-Christian. It it really just it it, it really pushes back at traditional Christianity overall. And as you take a look at it, it, it—it really promotes this. uh, It's a resurgence of an old belief called Gnosticism, which we're not going to get into today. But the idea behind that is anything physical is bad. Um, Salvation comes from looking within. Gnosis, a kind of belief that you're going to believe and you're going to get salvation through that. Um, and that's why it ties in with what I call Oprah theology of today. Hey, you can believe whatever you want as long as you're really sincere. And so it kind of couples with that really well. So this thing has turned into this cultural phenomenon. Another, a second reason that this is such a big deal is that people everywhere, including Christians, are asking big questions right now. Everyone's asking questions. Was Jesus God? Is the Bible, honestly, is it really reliable? Was he married? Come on, I never heard that. Maybe he was. So people, you know, argue, well, hey, this is a work of fiction. Why? What's going on here? Well, whether we're supposed to believe it or not believe it, people are believing it. That's why we have to talk about it. So um, do you realize that one out of three Canadians... Now actually believe, after seeing the movie or reading the book, believe that descendants of Jesus are walking around. are you glad you don't live in Canada? <laughs> like you're, you're buying this stuff? Um, well, don't laugh too hard. In America, uh, a reputable pollster, George, George Barna, um, has done a survey, and 53% of Americans who have seen it or watched the movie, actually, this is what they say, it's actually been helpful in their personal spiritual growth and understanding. Um, USA Today said the book contains historical fact with the (laughs) Americans who've seen it or watched the movie. Actually, this is what they say, it's actually been helpful in their personal spiritual growth and understanding. Um, USA Today said the book contains historical fact with a contemporary storyline. The uh, respected library journal called it a compelling blend of history and page-turning suspense. Um, Dan Brown the author himself told ABC's Elizabeth Vargas quote I began as a skeptic and I started out researching the Da Vinci Code I really thought I'd disprove a lot of this theory about Mary Magdalene and the Holy Blood and all of that then I became a believer he starts believing this stuff so um, and here's the 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 confusing piece that's getting a lot of people the very front of the book it makes this statement all descriptions of artwork architecture documents and secret rituals in this novel are accurate Um, even the characters in the movie make really emphatic statements all historians agree the marriage of Jesus and Mary is a matter of historical record and I could go on and on so that's that's why this thing is stirred so much so what we're going to do in today's message is I'm breaking this down into two parts the first is this let's give answers to the three biggest questions people are asking today and the second part is, how are you and I supposed to respond to this whole thing? Now, as you look at your outline, don't freak out. I'm going to spend much more time on this first section. The last section, how do I respond, is going to be a, a very short section at the end. So if you watch your clock, don't freak out. Uh, I know how we do this here. So just keep your eye on the ball here. Stay with me, and we're going to get through this together. So qu- answers the questions everybody is asking. Here's the first one. Is Jesus really God? Do you know that the claim was this? That in the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea, um, A.D. 325, uh, Constantine really came up with this whole theory that, you know, Jesus was God. And they kind of upgraded his status. You know, he was always considered this moral prophet, good teacher. But no, no, no. That's when they kind of upgraded his status. And people then began believing it. Take a look at the claim on the screen. This is what it, how it reads in the book. At the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325 many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Now, this isn't new. Uh, We've heard claims like this all over. The Da Vinci Code is just another resurgence of um, these big questions. Now, just so you understand, the Council of Nicaea did not Uh, come up with this whole idea of the deity of Christ. They did debate this one thing called the Arian heresy, which we aren't going to go into. Um, But it wasn't, this is not at all created. And and you should be able to defend that. As Christians, you know, it's the idea, could you really lay out the fact that Jesus was God? Could you give us some reasons that we should believe that? A lot of people are very uncomfortable with it. So that's where our focus is going to be today. We're not going to take all the little nitty-gritty of this book and go through the zillion questions of it. I want you to be able to respond... To the biggest questions no matter what's causing these questions that kind of raise the surface so here we go i'm going to give you five evidences five reasons that you could know that jesus is god and you can walk anybody through this stuff here's the first one um, he said it he said it um and that's pretty good you know if someone's god you hope that they would tell you that they are god um, jesus did that the one of the most famous ones john 14 6 says i am the way how many of you know this one i am the truth i am the life no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a bold statement. Let me tell you, that stirred the pot when he said things like this. Uh, the ruling religious class of the day did not like it. Um, he was controversial, tremendously controversial. Um, it's interesting, John fourteen nine. he said, Anyone who's seen me, they've seen the Father. Do you understand how big of a stir this started creating? They consider this blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. It was huge. In fact, do you remember when he went on trial before his crucifixion? What did the Jewish community accuse him of? Blasphemy. Claiming to be God. Was this some idea that was created in the 4th century? No, no. Uh, The historical record actually lays out the fact that, no, this is one of the reasons they wanted to put him on the cross. In fact, if you read Luke 22, it says, they're they're accusing him, tell us, they said, are you the Messiah? Are you then the son of God? And he answered them, you're right in saying that I am. And they said, we don't need any more witnesses. We ourselves have heard what he said, guilty of blasphemy. Jesus said it. Now, I know if you're thinking they're like, ooh, big deal. Someone says they're God. God. Yeah, you could walk the streets of LA and you'll find a lot of people who claim to be God. I'm a cop, trust me, I've met a lot of them. They're either cursing Jesus or claiming to be Jesus. I don't understand. But I've met a lot of people who say that they're Jesus. But how do you know? Well, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to prove it. The second way you know Jesus was God, he proved it. How did he do that? If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. This is a great story. This is the earliest historical record of Jesus, the book of Mark. Mark chapter 2, here's one way that he proved it, he forgave sin. Take a look at this story. Verse 1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people had heard that he had come home. So many gathered, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door that he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat and the par- that the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Got a picture that. Someone's digging through the roof. It's packed so much they couldn't get through the doors. Drop them in. Big deal. Big scene. You know, tons of people around watching this, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're sitting there and saying, ooh, you know, I could stand there and say, your sins are forgiven, and act holy, and sound pious, and people should believe that I'm God, right? Big deal. You say that, big deal. Do you think there are people in the audience thinking that? Let's keep reading. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this guy talk like that? He's blaspheming, claiming to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. So he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, he took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. That's pretty good. Do you understand that Jesus had a history of this kind of stuff? He proved his deity by what he did. He forgave sin. He did miracle after miracle. Do you realize that when people accuse Jesus, uh, this is not David Blaine kind of magic tricks going on. These aren't supposed healings. Uh, these are actual things that he did. They never accused him of not doing the miraculous works. That's a big deal. Because today, wouldn't you accuse, we accuse a lot of people. It's not, come on, it's not real. They never did that with Jesus. The best they could do is say, oh, he's at the house of Satan. But they could never challenge his works. He said it. He proved it. Did the miracles, he received worship, all these things. Um, the third thing, other scripture and history itself support these claims. It's famous verse, Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all fullness of deity lives in bodily form. It says he's God, full deity. Famous one, a lot of you probably know this one. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word, keyword, was God. Jump down to verse 14, what's it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about what we know as the incarnation, God becoming man, dwelling among us. Big deal. Scripture lays this stuff out. Um, Was this something made up later on? No. Jesus claimed he was God. He proved it. Scripture says it. Do you know that there's extra biblical evidence, evidence outside of scripture that backs up these claims that restate the claims of Christians and Christianity? There's tons of them. We don't have time this morning to go through all of them. But even within the first 110 years after Jesus died, there's over 100 documents laying out almost every teaching, miracle, um, and act that Jesus has done by people outside of Scripture. Uh, You can look at government officials like Pliny, Emperor Trojan, Emperor Hadrian, the Jewish Talmud. One of the most famous ones, the Jewish historian Josephus himself, he wrote this in AD 97. There was a wise man who called who was called Jesus. Many became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified to die, but those who had become his disciples didn't abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after the crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Fascinating one. This is a guy named Thallus, um, another historian, AD 52. Remember what happened at the crucifixion? The whole world got dark. All these crazy things happened. The, the Bible recounts that. This is another one. A historian, not a believer, recounts this. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake. And many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. The darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls as appears to me without reason eclipse of the sun. It's fascinating. Now you can go. We could stand up here all day. You just got to understand history claims it the scriptures claim it jesus's deity was always known throughout history what's another reason we can another evidence that you could know that jesus is god is my favorite one he rose from the dead okay that's a good trick that's a really good trick um do you understand how difficult it is to attack and accuse um or challenge the resurrection that it actually did happen do you know how difficult of a job that is It's hard. It's nearly impossible. Um, There's nothing in history you can claim with absolute certainty. We really believe Abraham Lincoln lived, right? We feel feel pretty good. Could you absolutely prove it beyond? Well, no, but it's pretty obvious he lived. Um, The resurrection is one of those things that is so solid. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. In fact, Paul was so confident of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said, listen, if this resurrection didn't happen, we're the most ridiculous of all people for believing this stuff. It's a big deal. It's been the center of Christianity since its inception. A couple of reasons here. Now I'm just going to give you the facts that we would know about the resurrection, even from the most skeptic uh, historians that have credibility. It's just they're all going to assert this much. They're going to tell you this. They're going to say Jesus of Nazareth was a, was a real person. He actually lived. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate around AD 30 in Jerusalem. They'll agree to that. Everyone will agree he actually died on the cross. Even the skeptical historians. Now there is, you know, even liberal scholars will scoff at books like The Passover Plot by Hugh Sconefield. He claims that Jesus survived the cross, you know, shove away that stone, come out and make these big appearances. Do you understand? It's just that nobody could take this seriously because of what Jesus went through. You know, stabbed by a spear, a spear, the flesh on his back ripped off, beaten beyond recognition, um, crucified on a cross, laying there with no food or water for three days. Uh, then he's going to come out, a half-dead Jesus, claiming he rose from the dead. Please. Like, who's taking that guy seriously? That's right. This is, it's, it's so scoffed and laughed at. It's not, it's not taken seriously. So they believe he actually died on the cross. Um, they agree that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They believe the tomb where Jesus, tomb where Jesus was uh, buried was discovered empty. Um, do you understand if that tomb was not empty, the disciples could not preach in Jerusalem, the place he died, about his resurrection and deity. They started it in the place he was crucified. Now, who has motive to do this? Let me tell you, the Roman government did not have motive. That's why they put guards there to ensure this did not happen. They needed to quell it. Pontius Pilate had enough problems on his hand. He did not need this. He had guards there. Did the Jewish leaders want this? No. You know, they're the ones who wanted him crucified to get rid of the problem. They had no motive of doing this. The only ones would be the disciples. And let me tell you, what, what could you see in the life of every disciple They believed this so deeply and sincerely, the ones who ran when Jesus was arrested were willing to die for the fact that he did rise from the dead. There was a massive turnaround in who they were as people and they were willing to die for their belief and even if they had to watch their family die. That's a big deal. And historians will agree that there's a massive turnaround in the disciples and they died for their belief. The resurrection is a big deal. And it's been the very center of Christian teaching. I'll give you one more evidence that we know Jesus was God. He changed lives. Um, we heard about the disciples. Uh, he changed lives of church leaders in history. I could quote from Ignatius, Clement, all these things, early 100s. The idea is this. Um, I could, we could have many of you stand up in here and talk about how Jesus is still changing lives, right? It's a big deal. Um, so was his deity created in the fourth century? No. No. These are five things that you could just kind of pack away right in your Bible um, to give you a sense of reassurance and ability to be able to talk about it. Second big question people are asking, is the Bible really reliable? What about these lost books, you know? The Gnostic Gospels. Did we miss something here? Is this thing really reliable? I remember I was in high school— And this was, it's such a clear and vivid memory. I remember waking up one day and I was just thinking through this stuff. I began critically analyzing my faith and wondering this very question. You know, how do we know that this thing is real? Like, how do you know that this was not changed? If somebody changes over time, I mean, how do we know this? You know, I've grown up in a church. How do I know that church is really teaching what's true? Am I believing this just because I grew up in this? This It's my history. Um, I remember the sense of terror that came over me realizing maybe there's not a God. Maybe there is no heaven. Maybe I'm all alone. It's a terrifying thought. Now, if we're honest, most people have probably thought that at least one point in their life. I also think that's why it's really good for us to have a message like this every now and then. Because those thoughts really can creep in when life begins to crumble around you. When things happen that you cannot understand and you need something to stand on and we have to go back to the basics of at least we know this much. At least we know there is God. At least we have Jesus. At least we can stand on the word of God. That's why this stuff is so important. I think that's why this next section will be helpful for you as well. Because let me tell you, when life crumbles you want to be able to turn to the word of god and have confidence in it it's a big deal now um, the the scriptures are going to be attacked on any secular campus you're going to go to Uh, i had teachers i was i went to cal state northridge i did undergraduate work there i did some master's work there uh, for public administration once but i'm just telling you teachers i had were just ridiculously aggressive towards the scriptures um doesn't matter which topic either it's kind of fascinating. So. Uh, it's, it's fun. You're going to pay thousands of dollars or get really bad instruction when you go to college, but you just got to know that before you get in there. Um, but here's the claim of the Da Vinci Code. Put it on screen. It says that the Bible's been changed through the centuries. Now take, go to the next slide. And this is, this is the claim that's in there that comes up in a lot of different ways. This is how it came up in this story. The Bible didn't arrive by facts from heaven. Oh, really? Thanks, guys. Um, the Bible is the product of man, not of God. The Bible didn't fall magically from the clouds. Oh, really? Thanks. You know, Dan Brown, thank you for that. Uh, Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. How many have heard that? Okay, someone talked to you about that? Isn't that a frustrating question? Like, uh, how do you know? Uh, I don't know, but I know it's not true. (laughs) You know, don't necessarily have a lot, but you want to really defend it. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Really? Um, it was fun. I was preparing this message at Starbucks. And uh, have my, I love studying at Starbucks. I love the conversations and stuff. So I had all this research out, and this lady sits next to me, and she goes, oh, you writing a book? I said, no, I'm a pastor. I'm actually writing a sermon. That's always a fun conversation starter. Um, <laughs> uh, and she was one of those ones that got real quiet real fast. I'm like, ooh, I, I probably should have not said that. So I'm like, yeah, and I just kind of later, yeah, I'm, I'm r- working on a sermon on the Da Vinci Code. Oh really? The Da Vinci Code? You saw the movie? I said, Yeah, I saw it. Did you read it? Yeah, I, I read it. Um, I'm like, What did you think of this thing? Well, you know, a lot of it's 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 not even real history, but you know, it does raise really interesting questions. I'm like, You are right. You know, for me, it actually raises a lot of great questions, because you know, I personally thought, you know, how do you know if the Bible's reliable? I remember times I've thought through that, like, how do you actually know that stuff? I'm like, have you ever thought that? Oh, have I thought that? She goes, Absolutely. You know, makes a lot of sense. You know, because church the her, church history really does. Definitively state that the Bible has been changed, and they've really controlled the message over the centuries, and that's that's pretty much that's pretty clear. Um, Find out she's actually a professor at Cal State University Northridge. <laughs> this is this is this was really fun. So uh, so anyway, I went through this real. Long, it was it was one of the it was what a great conversation we had. You know, it was actually really fun. It wasn't hot or heated at all. Um, but I it, had it, never had such an easy time uh, with a college professor walking through. Two things, the deity of Christ and the reliability of Scripture. Um, And while people will make hard and fast claims, they're very slow necessarily to have, in a sense, a lot of evidence. Uh, Amazing discussion. So I want to walk you through some things that you could use as you talk through anybody. One of the first things, you know, one of the questions is, you know, how do we get our Bible anyway? I'll just give you a quick snapshot. You know when Jesus was teaching, he'd go around and his teaching was amazing, right? People would be, the key word is amazed. He would say things. Oh man, they're amazed. Crowds would follow him. Jesus would often teach with parallelism or with story. Part of the reason is that was an oral culture. And the oral culture, um, he would do that because people would relay these stories over and over and he would use them so they could be told. There's estimates that they say maybe only 3% of the people were literate. So it was definitely an oral culture. We're used to words. Very literate culture, but back then it was an oral culture. And so at night they'd sit around the campfire and stuff. They're not watching, you know, American Idol, you know, whatever, news, things like that. They sit and they start recounting stories, um, teachings, memorized teachings, genealogies. Well, that's a fun one. You know, how do you get the kids to sleep? Let's do the genealogy one. Okay. Um, So they do these kinds of things. Uh, Now for us, we don't have anything close to that. The The closest thing I can say is, okay, maybe it's like this. Um, how many of you have ever like read a book to a little kid you know help him go to sleep at night well little kids sometimes have a very favorite book you know they love it and they know that story and maybe you've tried this i tried this with my niece years ago i was reading a book and i, I just want to be done with this thing i was like over it so you know i did that sneaky thing where instead of turning a page you turn two pages uh oh let me tell you what happens revolt uh let me tell you they know the next word that's supposed to be coming and if it's not there i mean full revolt. So. That's how an oral culture goes. You hear things, uh uh-uh, uh, that's not right. Um, that was so ingrained back then. Um, and that's how the oral culture worked. I mean, you cannot vary from that very much. It was, it was very hard to do because the, the wit- eyewitnesses were alive and around. And during the time the eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses, the disciples of Jesus were around, several of them began writing before they died so it could be remembered for history. Or they had people very close to them write. And that's how we started getting our, our Bible written. Now, some people say, well, do we have those original copies? No, we don't have the original copies. Freak out. Now we do know it's been changed. How do you know? Because we don't have the original. Don't freak out. Uh, It's as simple as me saying, you know, I write a letter. um, I give a letter to my wife. uh, I'll always write to her first. Um, I'll, I'll give a letter here to Joe. I'll give a letter over here to Jason. And each of them make 10 copies of my letter, and they mail it off to their friends throughout the world. Now we've got lots of copies of this letter. Now... Let's just say that my wife, because she loves me so much, she kind of exaggerates about me a little bit. And, you know, all her copies say all these amazing, wonderful things where the other copies are pretty much straight. Now, could you tell if there was a variation there? You gather all the copies and you can do that. That's kind of a, a, a simple way of saying, hey, how many copies of this thing do we have? How reliable are those copies? What's the geographic distribution of it? Let's get these things together and compare. And actually, when you do it with Scripture, it stands far and above anything else. The bibliographic evidence for the reliability of Scripture is bar none, far and beyond anything else that we have. The closest is Homer's Iliad, uh, written in 647. There's, you know, there's... Um, actually, it was written... there's, there's a, I, there's hundreds of years between the time of the original to the time uh, that they have of the copies. And no one will dispute that the Homer's Iliad, what you see is what you get. It was really there. Um, with scripture, we have copies within 100 years. There's 24,000 copies of manuscripts. Do you know how difficult, if you really want to change what I was saying, how are you going to go and track all those letters down and stop that stuff, ch- erase it, change it, get rid of them? Nearly Impossible fact, what's fascinating about scriptures too you can find a lot of quotes from extra biblical people people not in the bible quoting scripture talking about the teaching of jesus and you can almost put the majority of the teaching of the bible together too by people with extra biblical evidence it's just so when someone says hey this has been through countless revisions uh, revisions and changes no it hasn't the evidence is on them to do that you show me how it's been changed they can't do that people have tried for 2,000 years to stop the teaching. And the longer we're alive, the more confident we get because we keep finding more and more manuscript evidence. And it always backs it up. What a bummer for the other side. So, um, (laughs) now let me just say this. You know, the claim is this. Uh, More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament. You could put this slide up. Uh, Yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. 2003 the history channel did a special called banned from the bible and they also made this claim that a lot of books were really banned from being included there were other gospels around at the time oh really um what kind of tests they use when they were going to be saying hey what what books are really part of the canon of scripture should be included in the bible are we missing 80 other gospels matthew mark luke john what about philip thomas mary judas have you heard of those gospels you guys lately tv all these things are we missing these things great question here's some of the tests that um, were used throughout church history to to know what's in here Um, you can put this slide up as well one of the tests is was it written by an apostle or student of an apostle um so did like the disciple john wrote a book uh if you take a look at for example the book of luke he was a doctor but he was a really good friend of paul and he wrote this so pseudonyms were not accepted what's a pseudonym pseudonym is a false name you're writing under an assumed name anytime a gospel was written under an assumed name they would throw it out not accepted a second test that they would use was the content consistent with jesus's teaching um, is this teaching something way off that we all obviously know oral tradition states it the written scriptures of the actual disciples are stating this stuff because we have documents all the way back to the first century do you realize Matthew Mark Luke and John all written in the first century times when the disciples were alive and they the original disciples of the disciples were alive if you want to change a teaching do you know how difficult it would have been to do it then it was immediately would be challenged and squashed out by people people who were reputable nearly impossible third question was there continuous acceptance and use by the church at large well not just one little church using this supposed gospel. No, when they got these books, were they used in uh, Jerusalem? Were they used in Rome, Israel, Asia Minor, etc.? It had to be widespread usage. Other things they'd even look for, was it dynamic? Did it have transforming life power? Things like that. Now the fact is, the New Testament books were inspired and accepted hundreds of years before Constantine ever met. Do you know at the Council of Nicaea which books were disputed? None. None. It wasn't on the agenda. It's just part of, it's, it's all fiction. So don't freak out by that stuff. Here's another claim. It said that the uh, photocopies of the Nag Hammadi scrolls, which I mentioned, the earliest Christian records, they're claiming that there's other earlier Christian records than the four gospels. Well, let's take a look at our gospels. Put that next slide up. How do our gospels hold up? These are the oldest and most reliable gospels. Up oh, Next slide. Good. And next slide. Only ones written in the first century. Go ahead to the next one. Let's take a look at him. Mark was written in the 50s to 60s. He was a student of Peter. Matthew was written in the 60s to 70s. He was a disciple. You have Luke, uh, 60s to 70s, the doctor and a good friend of Paul. You have John, written in the 80s to 90s. He was a disciple himself. All of these were written 30 to 60 years after Jesus died. That's excellent, you guys. Amazing. Now, let's compare. How do the Gnostic Gospels do? Gospel of Philip, Thomas, Peter, Mary, those things. Um, The first of all, um, they're too old. They have late dates. All those were written from the mid 2nd century to the 6th century. They're all late. Which means what? Could the original people who bear the name of those Gospels written those? No. In fact, even the most skeptic and liberal scholar will not make that claim. So if you hear the Gospel of Philip, it was not written by Philip, Mary, Thomas. So don't They're all pseudonyms. What did we learn before? Do we accept any gospel that has a pseudonym? Never. It's not in there. So just know it has late dates. It's like me saying, hey, I'm going to write about George Washington. Ooh, big deal. You know, it'd be, wouldn't you rather have a friend of George Washington write about him? Whose account would you rather prefer, mine or theirs? Okay, you see what I'm saying? Hundreds of years removed. There's no comparison. That's how the Gnostic gospels line up. Um, So they have false names. And even Paul in 2 Thessalonians, says he, he, would just, he just says, hey, listen, um, don't, always, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter that's supposed to have come from us. He's even saying back then, just watch for these things. So you understand they were on alert, high alert. And this stuff was guarded so closely. Third thing, it had weird teachings. <laughs> you want to hear something? The most respected, the Gospel of Thomas. You want to go to heaven? Here you go. I myself shall, shall lead her in order to make her male. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. What? <laughs> People believe this stuff. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just crazy. The Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, Blessing on the lion if a human eats it. Making the lion human. Foul is the human if it eats a lion. Making the lion human. What? what is, like, this? Okay, does this have the ring of truth with it? No. Uh, when you read scripture, does it have the ring of truth? absolutely um i love this one it's not the gospel of thomas another one sa- says that when jesus was a boy you know he's with his other kid on the roof well jesus just kind of mm, shoves him off the roof <laughs> you know and the kid dies uh well now people realize hey jesus you're on the roof playing this guy you killed that kid uh killed him you know now the kid raises you know magic power <laughs> No, he's fine. See, you know, so they accuse Jesus of committing murder in in one of the gospels. It's just weird teachings like this. That's what the, these, uh, Gnostic gospels are claiming. So don't be alarmed by it. I'm going to give you this quick list that you can use. Here's some evidence that you can say, how do you know that the Bible is reliable? Just going to touch on these real briefly. Uh, if you try and write down everything, don't freak out. Listen to it online. Here we go. Number one is fulfilled prophecy. How do you know a book has supernatural origin? it tells you what happened before it happens. That's a good trick. Uh, And if it's right 100% of the time, do you know there's over 2,500 prophecies in the Bible? 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled. Micah chapter 2 gives the actual birthplace of Jesus hundreds of years before he was born. What if somebody had predicted hundreds of years ago that Taylor Hicks this year's American Idol would be born in Birmingham, Alabama and that he would be claimed American Idol. That would be a good trick, right? This is all over the Bible. Stuff like this is everywhere. Fulfilled prophecy is hard to dance around. Your only thing you can try and do is attack the date of when it was written. And that's a tough dance too. It's really hard to do it. You got to try and wiggle and wiggle around it. But there's overwhelming evidence fascinating study do it on your own um, second thing internal evidence 40 authors this is what internal evidence means uh there's over 40 different authors contributed to the writings of scripture over the 1500 year period of time at least three languages were written on three different continents now do you think over 1500 years there's going to be some controversy in, in these teachings you'd think so um today do you think we hit you picked any hot topic uh, we could go almost anything. Women's rights, border security. Uh, you go down the list, you know, Democrat or Republican. You pick any big issue, is there a big debate on this stuff? Huge. When you read through the teachings of Scripture, there's internal consistency, which means the message has been consistent that whole time. It's a much bigger deal the more you think about it. It's internally consistent. On God, on the condition of man. Does it say man is innately good? No. It says man innately will choose sin. When it talks about life, it matches up with life. Internally consistent. Um, Externally, it has a lot of external evidence. This just basically means when the Bible talks about things, it's true. How true? Archaeology backs this stuff up. We could stay here all day and talk about the archaeological discoveries that affirm what the Bible teaches. The book of Luke or Luke-Acts. You you realize that there's over 32 countries mentioned there, 52 cities, uh, three, at least three different islands that are in there, um, three continents, all this stuff. There, and archeological evidence has backed all this stuff up. In fact, the more time we have, the more evidence that is uncovered that what scripture says is true. That's why the Smithsonian Institute themselves, when they want to do archeological digs and things like that, where do they turn? The Bible, and they're a secular organization. Because when it speaks on history, it's true. Well, what about this one that they haven't discovered yet? Great, I don't know. They haven't discovered it yet. But what about the hundreds of these that they have? Do you know that's why the Book of Mormon you'd have a hard time doing anything with? They can't back any of it up. Uh, external evidence. Uh, the next one, manuscript evidence. I've talked about this one, so I'm not going to go into it. All the different copies, geographic spread, numbers of copies, uh, the weight of the copies, like how authoritative are they, and the geographic spread. They're all over the world. If you want to change the teaching, how are you going to track that stuff down? What you see is what you get. You can stand on it. Um, and the fourth thing, it has the power to change lives. You now it's a great thing to do. You don't have to argue all the points of fact or history, apologetic things. Just challenge somebody, hey, would you read scripture and just try it? Uh, we're going through a 1 Corinthians study. Pastor Mike has taken us through that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You want to know how to respond to your wife or you respond to your husband? It's going to say that love's an action. It is patient. It is kind. You respond gently. And you watch what happens. It works. It has the power to change lives. Um, let's just go. I'm going to buzz through this stuff. Uh, the third big question, was Jesus married? Okay, this is not a very difficult one. <laughs> Here's your claim. Uh, Jesus as a married man makes infinitely more sense than our standard biblical view of Jesus as a bachelor. Because Jesus was a Jew, the social decorum during that time virtually forbid a Jewish man to be unmarried. That's your argument? Uh, do you understand how, what bad log- logic this is? Mark Strauss points this one out. He says, it's like saying, uh, most prime ministers are men. Therefore, Margaret Thatcher is a man. Okay, it doesn't quite work like that. Just because most Jewish men were married doesn't mean Jesus was therefore married, right? Was the Apostle Paul married? No. Was John the Baptist married? No. What about the Qumran community where the Jews who lived there made a vow of celibacy? They were not married. So there's freedom here. And the second thing is, who cares? You realize 1 Corinthians 9 points out that you could get married to a believing wife. That's okay. Um, So don't freak out. But if you read the book, it'll say... Um, The marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene is part of the historical record. I shan't bore you with the countless references to Jesus and and Magdalene's union. Oh, please, Boris, with the countless references. (laughs) I would love to hear the countless references. So anyway, all that stuff. So how much evidence do we have? None. They have this weird quote from what's known as the Gospel of Philip, where Jesus kisses Mary Magdalene. What's the problem? A. Do we accept the Gospel of Philip? No. No uh, is gospel Philip claimed to be authoritative? No. Do even liberal scholars claim that this is a sexual kind of kiss? No. All right, next. Let's go on. How do we respond to this whole thing? How do we respond? I just want to take you to one scripture and give a couple brief comments on it before we close. 1 Peter three fifteen. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter three fifteen. Here's your key scripture for the day. This is what it says. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always. Underline that. Be prepared. Underline that. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. Underline the word reason. For the hope that you have. But do this with two more key words. Gentleness and respect great teaching what's the first thing we have to do let's prepare yourself prepare yourself you should be a little bit familiar with the book the movie Um, people are going to ask you about it but it's really pointing to these bigger questions that you need to know you don't have to know all the nuances of this book or movie but you should know the reason that you have for believing jesus and standing on the word of god you should know that You've got enough tools today that you can start with that. There's books at the resource room that you can get on the way out of here that will even help you further with that. Um, So prepare yourself. I just want to say this. Let me just visually paint a picture of of how this will work for you. Um, And I'll use a spider web as the illustration. When a spider makes a web, how does he do it? You ever notice a little spider? Uh, Most guys in here admit that they've watched spiders (laughs) when they were a kid or something. I still watch them. They, they, they'll start at the, uh, an anchor point. And what do they do? They kind of drop, crawl up somewhere, make another anchor, drop. And once they make their key anchors, what do they start do, to do? They fill in their web. Some of them are scattered. Some of them are really geometrical. But they always make their anchors. As believers, as anybody, you are anchoring your beliefs on something. As Christians, do we have solid anchors for our beliefs? We do. What's one that we talked about today? The deity of Christ. Okay, how do we know the deity of Christ? That's a big anchor for us. Well, he said it, right? He proved it, right? Miracles. He forgave sin. All the miracles is like another piece of web. Um, He said it. He proved it. Scripture claims it. More pieces of web going out. History backs this up. Hundreds of pieces of web going out. That's one anchor. What about the resurrection? Well, we talked about all those reasons, right? Anchors flying everywhere. What about the reliability of Scripture? Another big anchor for our belief system. There's internal evidence. Uh, I can't remember what that was. Uh, well, it's okay. <laughs> You're like, Just know, you could go back to your notes, but hundreds and thousands of pieces of evidence off of that external evidence archaeological finds that back it up thousands of pieces of web backing this thing up Do you get a picture of how big this web is getting how anchored our faith is um when something like the da vinci code comes up or a college university classroom and people start poking holes are pointing out the holes that are in your web like well what about the archaeological finds when the children of israel went through the desert can you find any of that stuff I don't know, I've never even heard of that. Uh, no, but that's okay. I could tell you this much. And I, While I don't know about that piece of hole in my web, I do, I do have this much. I do know this. Well, how'd Noah get the poop off the ark? Uh, I don't know. That's a hole in my web. I don't know how he did that. You know, you're going a tactic that is used is to throw a barrage of questions at you, pointing out holes in your web, and it makes people think that they don't have a web if you don't know how to do something. It's a tactic, but that's why for you, as you go on through your life, You're really building a web of belief. Today was kind of giving you big anchors and starting you on that process. There's tons of resources that you could use because when life falls apart for you personally, you need an anchor. If you want to test somebody's belief system against yours, you know what would be fascinating? Say, let me lay out my web of belief. Why I believe what I believe. My biggest anchors, my supporting evidence. And I'd really like to see you give me uh, what you believe. Give me your biggest anchors and give me your supporting evidence you know how embarrassingly small that would be? They can't do it. It is one of the most difficult things to do because their their authority may be another person, a professor. For Dan Brown, it's this book called Holy Grail. It's just embarrassing. So don't be intimidated by that stuff. Prepare yourself. The second thing is you respond with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. You know, one thing I look at when I talk to that college prof... Do you realize we talked for 25 minutes? We were laughing, having a good time. Not at all defensive. Just in the way of asking questions was not accusatory. I even gave the benefit of the doubt a lot of the time. Well, you probably realize that, you know, how they even do a bibliographic test, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, she kind of nodded. But just start walking them through. You don't, but don't, you don't need to be um, abusive. You don't need to throw a thousand facts at them. That's like shooting a machine gun. Don't come across with a sense of arrogance. What Mike talked about last week in the message, the mark of a spiritually mature person isn't just that they, not that they can have all this knowledge and build a big web of belief, but how do they love and care for somebody in the process? Big deal. So speak with gentleness and respect. And the third thing is this, take advantage of opportunities. Do you realize there's no easier time to talk to people about Jesus than now? This movie's been one of the greatest things out there because it's never been... E- I, you can't just have conversations like this at Starbucks so easily. I'm just telling you. This just doesn't happen. Uh, ask questions to people like this. Hey, have you seen it? Hey, what'd you like better, the book or the movie? Um, what'd you think of Tom Hanks' hair? Uh, <laughs> uh, you could ask things like, you know, was there any piece of evidence in there that kind of changed your view of history? You know, dialogue about those pieces. Those are interesting. But at least dialogue. I'll just close with this illustration here. Um, At the very end of the movie, uh, Tom Hanks comes out with this big line. And he says this. Hey, it doesn't matter what you believe. Yeah. Uh, Wait, no, I already messed it up. Uh, (laughs) What did Tom Hanks exactly say? Here's the gist of it. I just screwed it up. But here's the idea. Uh, um, It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's the heart of his statement. Um, Is that reassuring? No. Let me tell you, when your world's crumbling down, it's not reassuring. If I said I have two glasses here, one's got water, one's got bleach. One will help sustain your life. The other will kill you. I want you to come and just drink one. It it doesn't matter what I believe about it. It just matters what you believe. Come have a drink. What? Uh Uh-uh. Not playing like that. I want to know what's true, right? Don't give me this what you believe thing. Do you understand what we're dealing with here? These belief systems are life or death. These are heaven or hell. They have eternal consequences. Do we need to be up on this stuff more than ever? We absolutely do. It is a big deal what you believe. Because it has eternal consequences. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Um, If there's somebody in this room tonight, or this morning, and and this is the first time you've really heard evidence for Jesus laid out, and you have the sense that you need to respond to the lord you just need to acknowledge this lord jesus i this is the first i've really known you're true i even sense it in my own spirit right now and i just want to accept you into my life accept your death your burial and your resurrection um i want to be a believer and i want to follow you you praying this right now asking the lord just to cleanse you of all your sin you're becoming you've become a believer And I just say, write that on your little card because we want to follow up with you. And for the rest of us, Lord, would you please help us right now um, prepare ourselves, may we respond with an absolute sense of gentleness and respect, and would we really take advantage of every opportunity at our fingertips. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Tom Hanks, this is what he said, what matters is what you believe. You know what Jesus said? Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Um, this week, there's a lot of people heading on the road of destruction. But for some reason, for some way, God has chosen to use you and me to intercept their path. So hopefully we can gently and with respect take him by the hand and introduce him to Jesus. So keep your eyes open this week. Um, take huge advantage of this opportunity. Um, I'd recommend this resource by Mark Strauss. It's called Truth and Error and the Da Vinci Code. It goes beyond, it goes into more of the defenses for Christianity as well. It's in our, we have a limited number of copies in our, in our store there too. But just grab something to help back you guys up. But keep your eyes open. Because people need you this week to cross their path. All right? Make sure you express your appreciation to Jan on your way out. Thank you, Jan and Max. God bless you guys. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening.